The Terrifying Lies Podcast, with music and stories by Craig Nibo. Greetings, friends, and welcome back to the Terrifying Lies Podcast, where I offer news, stories, and music every first and third Friday of the month at high noon. Just a fair warning, today's episode is part two of a two-part story. If you haven't listened to part one, I encourage you to go back one episode and tune in. For every episode of the Terrifying Lies podcast, I consider you to be a guest in a grand hall of story and song. It's like putting on a virtual performance where I have an opportunity to stand before an audience of my friends and entertain you. I'm so grateful you are here. Welcome to the venue. Please pardon the cobwebs and the skeletons hanging on the walls. Don't worry, they don't bite. Or do they? Today, I give you part two, the conclusion of Blue Rinse and a Shotgun. This zombie story takes place in a larger world. In fact, if you listened to season one of Terrifying Lies, you might remember two stories, Whistler and the Children, which featured an apocalyptic long-haul trucker captured by a mob of children while raiding a big box store, and The Bloody Journal of Lance King, which featured a musician trapped in a school during the zombie apocalypse. Both of these stories, along with Blue Rents and a Shotgun, take place in the same world. If you listen closely, Lance mentions the town of Farmingham, where Mildred, from today's story, lives. Although characters from these stories never run into one another, it's entirely possible that they could. Who knows? Perhaps in some future writing endeavor, I might bring them together. This is Blue Rents and a Shotgun, Part 2 of 2. Written and performed by Craig Nibo. Holland's market smelled like old meat. Mildred stayed off using her nose and forced herself to breathe through her mouth as she guided her electric chair into the grocery store. Nearly empty shelves lay appended, their wares scattered like jacks, nothing more than measly smatterings of cans and boxes across the tiled floor. Much of the store had been pillaged, but a small quantity of foodstuffs remained. Mildred might not find everything she wanted, but she felt she could glean what she needed from the leftovers to survive for a while longer. Most of the pungent odor came from the meat department. The whole area lay open, washed in gore. Cutlets of chuck steak, sausage, fatty pork, hunks of chicken and fish, all mixed in a rancid concoction, riddled the department. Hanging in streamers over display cases, scattered across the floor in a wash of runny, leftover slop. Flies weaved through the mess, licking up carrion and spreading their disease. The zombies who had engorged themselves had left some of their own behind. One, a woman, her mouth soused with runnels of her last meal. Another, a man, lulled, curled up in a fetal position in the meat case, one fist clamped around a half-eaten rump roast. Neither of the zombies moved. Mildred figured they had just expired in the ecstasy of so much glut. 
Mildred steered clear of the whole mess and made her way to aisle four where Holland's market stocked canned vegetables. She kept her shotgun perched, careful to take aim around every corner before wheeling past open aisles where zombies might lay in wait. Bill Whitley had gone into the market. She didn't plan on meeting him anyway except to barrel first, and when she did run into him, she would drop him like a scarecrow with two simultaneous rounds of birdshot. Most of the food had been picked, but a few cans of different varieties still stood on the shelves in scatterings of groups and spaces. She'd have to settle for a can of this and an off-handed can of that, whatever she could garner. She pulled her hover round up to the shelves, checked both ways, and stood up. She didn't like laying her shotgun down to reach for cans on the shelves. She disliked moving to the red wagon, tethered to the back of the chair, to place the cans on its slatted platform. Every foot she moved away from her shotgun made it more difficult to arm herself in case of an attack. She kept an eye on both ends of the aisle, craning her neck back and forth as if she was watching a tennis match. When she finally finished picking the display case, she looked over her stash. She'd barely covered the wagon's platform with one layer of cans. If she intended to last more than a few weeks back at Jamestown, she'd need a lot more than the paltry cash in her little red wagon. She wondered if the back room had been hit. She'd gone back there from time to time to use the bathroom when she came shopping at Holland's. The grocery store kept a large back stock of merchandise in the back room, organized by aisles, ready to be brought out to the sales floor as customers made their purchases and emptied the shelves. Mildred sat down in her hover round and rested the shotgun across her lap. She hadn't seen Bill Whitley since he'd come into the grocery store. That made her nervous. She couldn't afford to slacken her vigilance. She raised the heavy barrel of her shotgun in front of her and ushered her chair towards the back of the store with a push of the little joystick. The quiet got her more than anything, except for the whir of her electric chair and the clatter of her wagon wheels against the tiled floor. Complete silence ruled. The silence loomed over her like a cowled specter, stealing the sound and some of her soul along with it. She pushed the play button on the MP Hui player to break the monotony. The dark opening chords of The Mooch broke the silence with its horn section long tones. Mildred smiled to herself. The song always made her feel sneaky, like she was in the act of doing something slightly illegal and fun. With two cases of stolen beans in a red wagon, she supposed she was living out that fantasy. Now she had the background music to make it feel real. She rounded a corner and her electric chair clattered into a mess of broken glass and scattered metal. She'd taken her eye away from where she was going just long enough to start the music and hadn't noticed the debris in her path. She jockeyed the little joystick back and forth, but the wheels of the chair had become sauced with something slippery. She looked down at the floor. Several broken bottles of mayonnaise lay amongst parts of a broken display case that had fallen on its face probably weeks ago. She swore to herself. She would have to be careful getting out of the chair to clear the debris. She couldn't afford to slip on the smudge and break something. A clatter raised from behind her. Cold chill bloomed at the nape of Mildred's neck. She cranked her head around to try to spot the source of the sound. She caught movement out of her extreme peripheral sight, but she couldn't tell who or what was back there. A dark smudge. Holy heavens how her vision had flagged off over the past five years. The smudge moved, stalking slowly towards her. She could tell by the unsure gait of the thing that the figure must be a zombie. She jockeyed the chair forward, prompting it to move by pushing the little joystick, but the debris blocked her way. The zombie was closing on her fast. She couldn't flee. She couldn't even turn around to face it. Would that be Billy Whitley back there? She shouted, crimping her hands down on her shotgun. The zombie stopped. Had it understood her and stopped at the mention of its name? 
Mildred didn't know, and she didn't have time to speculate. She pushed herself forward from the back of the chair and tried to find a place free of debris where she could stand to face the beast. But broken glass and slippery mayonnaise blocked her way. The last thing she needed was to slip, fall, and break a hip. She recalled the old nighttime television commercial some fear-mongering company had broadcast back in the 70s to try and peddle a medical call button to seniors. An old woman lied helpless on the ground. She pushed the button and shouted, I've fallen and I can't get up. Mildred pictured herself splayed across the carnage of glass and mail, shouting, I've fallen, I can't get up, and zombies are eating my flesh. Nope better to stay seated for this one. The zombie moved again, lurching into a shuffle towards her. Mildred craned her neck as far as she could so she could shout over her shoulder. Billy, I know that's you, young man. I saw you come into this place when I blew your friends away out front. The zombie continued its broken walk towards her. If you're looking for forgiveness, Billy, for what you did to poor Cloris Dolman, you can forget it. You've always been a bad seed. You were in life, and you are now that you're dead and revolting. The zombie opened its maw and uttered a guttural rasp. Mildred couldn't tell if the thing was trying to communicate with words or if it was merely licking its chops in anticipation of saucing down her tepid flesh. You're just like your father, Billy. He was a chump, never made out with more than a pug nickel in his pocket, always on the prowl for booze and prostitutes. The apple don't fall far from the tree, Billy. The zombie reached forward with one hand, closing the distance between it and Mildred. In five steps, it would reach her, and she would be out of words. In no way were you and Cloris ever alike, Billy. She was a lady, and you fouled her with your dull, gaping eyes and your idiot groping. Cloris was my friend, and now she's gone. And you get to walk this town like a tottering fool, your belly full of red meat and spew. I may not have my friend Cloris with me, but I brought another friend of mine along, and I want you to meet him. The zombie moved even closer. Mildred could practically feel the lick of its cool fingers on her neck. She raised her shotgun, aiming the barrel back over her shoulder, supporting the stock with the heel of her left hand. She put her thumb against the cool metal of the triggers and steadied the barrel with her neck. Billy Whitley, meet my friend Remington, Mildred said, then closed her eyes and pulled both triggers. The gun belched. She practically lost control of the weapon on the recoil. It bucked like it shared her taste for revenge. The barrel, instantly hot, burned her neck. She pushed it away and it clattered to the floor. She couldn't tell if she'd hit the zombie or not, but she didn't have the 13 seconds she needed to reload anyways. She winced curling in on herself, expecting the zombie's hands to wrap around her neck and pull her head back for a feast. Instead, she heard shuffling as the thing struggled to gain its equilibrium. She opened her eyes and turned to look over her shoulder. She caught the blur of its form teetering and pinwheeling, its front washed with a new stain that could only be blood. The zombie, facing away from the wagon after trying to regain its footing, teetered backwards and landed hard on top of the cans of beans Mildred had stacked. Mildred swore to herself. She'd have to clean every one of those cans before putting them on the pantry shelves back home. The Terrifying Lies podcast will return after this short commercial break. Welcome back to the Terrifying Lies podcast. Mildred reached for the shotgun on the floor. With her fingertips, she managed to snatch it up. She broke it, reloaded it, 
and rested it across her lap. A new song played on her MP Hui player. Duke struck up the Cotton Club Orchestra in his arrangement of Saratoga Swing, another of Mildred's favorites. She took in an even breath, collecting her senses. Then, with a series of back-and-forth movements and turns, she freed her chair of the debris and wheeled through the swinging doors into the back room, dragging her load of beans and the body of Bill Whitley in her little red wagon behind her. In the back room, shelves and shelves of goods stood shoulder to shoulder, inviting her to take whatever she wanted. She whirred up to a shelf full of dry goods, rice, flour, and sugar. She got up out of her chair and looked down at her red wagon. Bill Whitley, half his head blown off like a gibbous moon, lay on his back. Mildred felt satisfied that the little urchin hadn't died in peace. Perhaps there was a form of justice in the world after all. She looked up at the foodstuffs stacked high on the shelves, wondering how she would find the strength to lift the large bags of flour down. That's when she heard someone pounding and shouting from the room behind her. She whipped around, raising the shotgun. The sound came from a gigantic industrial pantry cooler across from the storage shelves. Someone was trapped inside. Mildred shuffled across the back room, shotgun raised, keeping her eye on the pantry door window, which was less than half the size of a man's face. Inch by inch she moved, occasionally checking over her shoulder in case Bill Whitley decided to get up for round two. A large steel latch kept the pantry locked from the outside. Whoever was pounding away in there had no means of escape. Mildred moved up close to the door and put a shoulder against its metal. She glanced through the little window, trying to catch a glimpse of whoever was trapped inside. Let me out! A man's voice shouted, panicked, desperate. Mildred edged around so she could get a better look through the glass. If the man had a gun, he could easily shoot her through the window. But she had to know who the man was. Suddenly, a face appeared in the glass, so unexpected that Mildred leapt in fear, clutching at her heart. She leveled her shotgun at the window and planted her finger on the trigger. Before she could fire, the man looking through the glass smiled, bearing a bank of perfectly capped teeth. Mildred's eyes welled up instantly as she lowered the gun. She grabbed the latch on the door and pulled with all she had. There was a click and the door began to swing open. The man inside the pantry pushed from the other side. The heavy door moved and Stan came out, still dressed in the tan coveralls he had donned before heading off for milk, eggs, and probably some of those heaven-forsaken little Debbie treats. Hey, Mill. It's been a while, Stan said, tears of his own in his eyes. One of them broke free and ran down his cheek. Mildred released the shotgun let it clatter to the floor. She reached up and took Stan into the tightest embrace she could manage. He hugged her back with the same delight. Been in there for months, Stan said. Didn't know what you'd run out first, my sanity or my food supply. Believe me, you don't want to catch a whiff of that place. Best leave the door shut tight. Oh, Stan, Mildred said and pushed away from him. She looked up into his handsome face, rugged and experienced, traced with lines drafted over the fifty years she had spent with him. I see you finally put down that pest, Billy Whitley. You know, he's been puttering around this place for weeks, rooting for fresh meat, I suppose. Looked in on me every now and again, licking his chops. Guess he couldn't figure out how to open the pantry door. Mildred looked back at Bill, who still lied on her stash of beans. He's no longer a problem, she said. Caddy's parked out back, Stan said, smiling down at his lovely wife. She's all gassed up. What do you say we load her up with what we can and head south? I'm in the mood for a change. Sounds wonderful, Mildred said and embraced him again. I love you, Peach. I thought I was a goner. 
Stan said, returning the embrace. Mildred couldn't pull her cheek away from Stan's slight chest. She held him so close that she feared cracking his ribs. I don't care if we're the last two people on earth, she said. We're together, and that's all that matters. Stan smiled as he cleared the tears away from Mildred's eyes with one gentle finger. Sure, there was trouble ahead. There'd be disease, there'd be looters, there'd be zombies. But as long as he had Mill, and she had him, they could make anything they wanted out of this burned-out husk of a world. This has been Blue Rents and a Shotgun, Part 2 of 2, written and performed by Craig Nibo. For today's song, I give you a little ditty from the first zombie sing-along album. This album contains 10 songs about the undead meant to be sung around the campfire. You can stream the album on your Alexa by asking, Alexa, play the album Zombie Sing-Along by Craig Nibo. You can also stream it anywhere you listen to music. I collaborated with my good friend Patrick Tracy on this song. You might have heard him perform one of his stories with the Freestyle Gargoyles last season on episode 19. More gargoyles, more gallimaufry, one of the interseason editions. Patrick is a brilliant writer. I've collaborated with him on a few songs. For today, I give you our big date, Posthumous. I think it's positively awful if you really want to know the truth. Oh, Bethy, don't be that way. What's the trouble? How would you like to get a cemetery plot for a wedding gift? I'd like to tell you something I'm sure you know by now I've shared these thoughts before you know But something's changed somehow You know I love you dearly And I could not say farewell But something's different clearly And I feel that I must tell There's a little bit of dirt in your hair tonight, my dear There's a little bit of dirt in your hair tonight, I fear And you look a little gray around the cheekbones And the soil is quite disturbed before your tombstone There's a little bit of dirt in your hair tonight Now I wouldn't wish to interrupt our date And there isn't an earthly reason not to stay out late But there is that deadly pallor to consider And the smell of embalming fluid doesn't quite say come hither There's a little bit of dirt in your hair tonight, my dear There's a little bit of dirt in your hair tonight, I fear And you look a little gray around the cheekbones And the soil is quite disturbed before your tombstone There's a little bit of dirt in your hair tonight You know I dearly love 
has gotten rather cold, and it seems your elbow's gone to mold. Your teeth, while white, are falling out. Your nose won't last another bout. Your clumsy steps are just unequal to give our waltz another sequel, and you clearly don't too much like going out. There's a little bit of dirt in your hair tonight, my dear. There's a little bit of dirt in your hair tonight. I fear, and you look a little gray around the cheekbones, and the soil is quite disturbed before your tombstone. There's a little bit of dirt in your hair tonight. Long ago we swore that we would never part. You can be sure. That I took that part to heart. There's a little bit of dirt in your hair tonight, my dear. There's a little bit of dirt in your hair tonight. I fear, and you look a little gray around the cheekbones, and the soil is quite disturbed before your tombstone. There's a little bit of dirt in your hair tonight. This has been Our Big Date, Posthumous. Music by Craig Nibo. Lyrics by Patrick Tracy. Thanks for joining me on another episode of the Terrifying Lies podcast. It is truly my pleasure to come to the table every fortnight with another yarn and a song. Please join me for the next episode. You are welcome here. Until then, sweet dreams, or should I say, sweet nightmares. This has been the Terrifying Lies podcast. Please come again. You're welcome here. (laughs) 